Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 22, Severed Heads and Cosmic Eggs, Orpheus and Esotericism. In the podcast so far, we've looked at a few different sorts of materials, which all come together in this episode. We've had a look at the idea of the ancient barbarian sages, an idea with strong roots in ancient Greek culture, but which later moved on and transformed other cultural groups, including the Western esoteric traditions. We've looked at the hard-to-pin-down world of early Pythagoreanism, and at Pythagorean-influenced thinkers like Empedocles. We've talked about the importance of epic poetry for early classical thought on religion, in the context of Parmenides and Empedocles' philosophic transformations of the form of the hexameter poem. And we've talked a little bit about the initiatory rites known as the mysteries. Oh, and we mustn't forget the underworld journey, the catabasis, which will feature heavily in this episode and the episode that follows. It's now time for a first look at Orpheus, both as a mythological figure and as, well, an esoteric author. The figure of Orpheus seems to have been remarkably prominent in the ancient world, which shouldn't surprise us too much considering it remains so potent today. Most people will have at least the image of a guy strumming a lyre when they hear the name Orpheus, and others will perhaps think of the power of Orpheus's music to charm even wild beasts to placidity, or of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which features in many a children's digest of Greek mythology. So who was this guy, and what did he get up to aside from playing the kithra? I'll just start with a swift disclaimer. As with all Greek mythology, there is no definitive original account of the Orpheus myth. Ancient writers did, and were actually expected to, embellish and change things as they went along. Stories got added to or blended together over time. So in the first part of this podcast, where we're going to have a quick look at some of the most important myths about Orpheus, please don't think that these are drawn from some scrupulous attempt to find out the earliest form of the myth or anything like that. Half of our material here comes from Roman poets retelling Greek stories anyway. I'm just telling the old stories in my own way, which is what the ancients did too, and later on what Western esotericists would go on to do in their own inimitable ways, starting with Plato himself, as we shall see. So the first thing to know about Orpheus is that, like many of the greatest authors and esoteric authorities of history, he didn't exist. He is a mythological character. In his earliest appearance, he is an Argonaut that is one of the companions of Jason on his quest to acquire the Golden Fleece in the good ship Argo. The story of Jason and the Argonauts has a sort of dramatic date in the generation before the Trojan War. So to ancient Greeks, this was the really, really old, ancient stuff. Happened in the distant past. So Orpheus went with Jason on the big quest, and he was the ship's musician. Orpheus is known as the greatest musician of history, the lyre player par excellence, and we should note he's often an exponent of the magical powers of music. He helps the Argonauts escape from the threat of the sirens, in some accounts, who are magical monsters whose song irresistibly lures sailors to their deaths, a variant on a kind of sea monster found in many cultures. We aren't told explicitly how Orpheus did this, but it's assumed that he counteracted the power of the sirens' song using his own music. In other tales, he charms the animals of the field and the birds of the air with his music, and sometimes even stones sit up and listen when he strums. 
Perhaps most importantly, he is able to influence the gods themselves with his music. At the center of the Orpheus myths is this understanding of the power of music to affect important change in the world, and this is, of course, a common magical theme. In Greek, the basic word for song can also mean enchantment, and we see this parallelism in many cultures. Everyone knows that music is powerful. And in later esotericism, most notably in Marsilio Ficino's Orphic magical singing, but in a surprising number of other contexts as well, this theme will become central. As to his biography, the general consensus seems to be that Orpheus is the son of one Oigreus, but occasionally there are hints that he's the offspring of Apollo himself, which would explain his skill on the Kithra. He comes from Thrace, the highlands of ancient Greece, an area divided up nowadays between Turkey, European Turkey, and the lower Balkan states. The Thracians were, in Greek eyes, somewhere between barbarians and Greeks. They spoke Greek, of a sort, but they had all kinds of customs foreign to the more familiar classical Greeks of the polis culture. And we get a lot of references to them as associated with curious cultic practices and as practitioners of strange rites. So Orpheus is kind of an honorary Greek, but with a frisson of the exotic about him. As we shall see, many of the features of the classical barbarian sage accrue to his name, including the foundation of mystery rites, teletai. What gets the later esoteric traditions and the modern artistic traditions fired up is the story of Orpheus's katabasis, his descent to the underworld, his return, and his eventual rather spectacular death. The story goes like this. Orpheus loved a woman called Eurydice, or Eurydice, and they were married. But Eurydice was walking by herself one day and was assaulted by a passing satyr who liked what he saw. She ran away, but in fleeing, she was bitten by a poisonous snake and died. There's a few versions here, but the point is, bitten by a snake and died. Orpheus lamented and basically sat down to play some sad old songs. But this was not the usual country and western fare that one naturally turns to in times of great loss. This was music so profoundly moving that the gods themselves said, Look, Orpheus, you can break all the rules and go to Hades to get Eurydice back. Just stop playing that depressing music. Even the gods couldn't resist the power of Orpheus's playing. So they allowed him to break all the rules and bring back his dead wife to the land of the living. So he made the long journey to the underworld. He charmed Kerberos, the three-headed watchdog, at the gate with his melodies. And then finally he stood before the throne of Hades and Persephone, where he made his request that Eurydice be returned to him, accompanied by a suitably moving musical performance. Persephone was taken in and granted him his wish. Hades went along with this, but stipulated a condition. Eurydice's shade would follow Orpheus out of the underworld, but Orpheus must on no account look back at her until they had both reached the sunlight of the upper world. Until she emerged into the sunlight, she would belong to the lower realm. Orpheus made the long trudge back to the mortal world with Eurydice's shade following silently behind. But, of course, just as he emerged into the light of day, he could no longer resist and turned back only to see Eurydice's fair face a final glimpse of her shade before it fell back into the world of the dead, this time forever. Again, there are different versions of this story, but the common feature seems to be the magical prohibition which Orpheus fails to keep, and thus loses Eurydice. Although we have some 
versions which circulated in antiquity, where Orpheus was actually successful in getting Eurydice back. But in the more popular and influential, dismally tragic version, Orpheus did a lot more lamenting, and this eventually led to his gruesome death. A group of women of Thrace, in some versions of the story they are a mynadic band of Dionysiac initiates, and sometimes they're just a bunch of savage Thracian ladies who don't really get more identification than that, they tear Orpheus limb from limb and scatter the chunks of him across the hillsides. We have ancient vase paintings where the mob of women is rushing at him as he plays his lyre, and others where they're already in full-throttle dismemberment mode. So this was a well-known and popular story that you would have um, depicted on your dinnerware in classical Greece. So Orpheus is dismembered by a band of women. Now in some versions of the story, his severed head finds its way down a river, still singing magically all the while, and eventually the magic singing head is given a proper burial and a tomb, which then becomes the site of an oracle. The dismemberment theme is an old one, and the Bacchic women may be significant, as we shall see. So that's the myth cycle about Orpheus, which made its mark on later esoteric thinkers, long after the Argonauts were more or less forgotten. The myth has a lot going on. It's an epic love story. It has a mortal of such excellence that he's able to break the normal rules of life and death, but then fails due to his own intemperance. It contains a description of an underworld journey, which is our favorite kind of journey here at the Schwepp, and it ends in a bizarre and rather jarring manner. One gets a feeling that a number of different mythological tropes are being jumbled together here. The catabasis is, as we've seen, an important trope in Greek religious thought, but the dismemberment and scattering reminds one of the myth of Osiris, while also bringing in references to the Bacchic mysteries, including possibly the problematic myth of Dionysus Zagrios, which we discuss briefly in the next episode. The singing severed head motif may be a late addition to the canon, as it isn't attested in classical times, but this could also be an accident of transmission. It may be that it was always part of some versions of the tale, altogether a strange and potent collection of stories. The cycle of Orphic myths has provided a rich source of symbolic and narrative imagery for later artists, both ancient and modern, to draw on. Greek poets loved it, as did some of the finest classical Romans, and modern works like Cocteau's Orphic Film Trilogy or the Bad Seeds album The Liar of Orpheus are just representative samples of the ongoing fecundity of these stories. But there's a wholly more esoteric stratum of what we might call Orphic material, which comes to us from antiquity, quite different from the mythological stories, though clearly related to them in some ways. The question of an Orphic religion in antiquity is one of the most controversial puzzles of the classical world and classical scholarship, and we shall address that problem in the next episode with expert help. For now, though, having talked about the myths of Orpheus, we should talk about the Orphic myths. We mentioned that Orpheus was an author. A bewildering array of works circulated under his name in antiquity, known collectively nowadays as Orphica. So we don't have any of these works in their whole form, but we have lots and lots of fragments, and we have lots of later authors, especially later Platonists, telling us that Orpheus said this, or according to Orpheus, that. We can deduce from all the evidence that there were long hexameter poems that circulated under the name of Orpheus, sometimes referred to in our authors who are mostly late Platonists again, as the Rhapsodic Theogony, or simply cited as the works of Orpheus. 
and we assume that they're talking about one of these epic hexameter poems. We know for sure that there were many variants on this poem or these poems. This was not a text, but a number of related texts, which Martin West has attempted to arrange in a kind of family lineage in his book, The Orphic Poems, but which remains pretty mysterious in terms of how all the poems might relate to each other and to other works of the time. Now, the Theogony is the title given to Hesiod's famous poem. It's an account of how the gods came to be. Orpheus's Theogony was, as far as we can tell, very different from Hesiod's, and we'll get into that in a minute. And we might as well note here the interesting fact, preserved for us in a fragment of Proclus's Lives of Homer and Hesiod, that both of these gentlemen, Homer and Hesiod, were direct descendants of Orpheus. This makes sense in light of one of the most important roles played by Orpheus in the later Platonist tradition. He was simply the theologian. If you see the term theologos without any name given in a Platonist text, you can assume it's Orpheus who is meant. Just as in the medieval Islamic world, the philosopher can be taken to refer to Aristotle. This is definitely not a theologian by the later meaning of the term theologian. This is a theologos, someone who gives an account, logos, of the gods, theoi. Someone who wrote a damn fine theogony, in other words. This is someone who tells stories about how the gods came to be. This isn't someone who argues for a kind of rationalist system explaining the ontological reality of the gods. So Orpheus is positioned by the later Platonists as the Theologos par excellence, and they preserve for us some extracts or paraphrases from the hexameter poems attributed to him. Good. Um, in this context, moving back to the classical period, from the late antique period where the Platonists were getting busy, we should remember that Greek epic was composed in the first instance to be sung. In fact, in its pre-literary form, it wasn't composed at all. It was improvised live to the playing of the kithara, most likely. A feat of metrical and verbal cunning which is so far beyond the reach of modern literate populations as to seem impossible. But possible it was, as we have known since Milman Perry's groundbreaking work on the Homeric texts. The Orphic Rhapsodies, as far as we can tell from fragments, were, of course, compositions. They weren't orally improvised traditional epics, but they were modeled on them. But the point here is that Orpheus, as a musician par excellence, would have been to Greek eyes a poetic rhapsode par excellence as well. Poetry was sung, not read. So when we talk about Orpheus the musician, we have to keep this in mind. The hexameter poems fit perfectly in with the calling of an ancient Greek musician. The theology, or theogony, is weird and wonderful. It has excited the fascination and the scorn of many readers. Linforth, incidentally, whose excellent book, The Arts of Orpheus, is probably the best single introduction to the complicated evidence for all the different strands of Orphic culture and antiquity, so it's recommended for anyone who wants to get a single go-to source for much of this complicated evidence that I'm skipping over in this episode, although it's this book is out of date because so much new evidence has come to light in recent years. Linforth ends his book by calling the Orphic story of Fanny's a silly tale, but notes that as great a writer as Plato took notice of these myths, so something heavy had to be going on there. It can't just all be silliness. Just to be doubly clear here, we're no longer talking about 
the myths about Orpheus. We're talking about the myths of the birth of the gods and the cosmos in the ancient rhapsodies thought to have been written by Orpheus. We're talking about myths composed by a myth. We turn now to Orpheus, the revealer of the origins of the cosmos and the gods, and Orpheus, the culture hero, founder of mystery rituals, or teletai. We saw in episode 16 on Pythagoras that the historian Herodotus links the Egyptians with the Pythagoreans and, quote, those known as Orphics and Bacchics, which could also be translated as the so-called Orphics and Bacchics, all of whom have a prohibition on burying dead bodies clad in wool. Now, this passage in Herodotus may not refer to Orphics as people, but rather to Orphica, rites of some kind, known to Herodotus as Orphic rites, similarly to Bacchic rites. There are two extant manuscript traditions for the passage, and so we have to kind of choose between them, and it gets a little confusing. But either way, whether he's referring to Orphics, as in people who are Orphic, or referring to Orphic practices, we have a reference here to some kind of Orphic religious presence, which Herodotus thinks his readers will recognize. Other evidence confirms this, all of it complicated, but adding up to some certainty. There were, in 5th century Athens at least, a group of people who considered Orpheus as somehow their culture hero or spiritual master, who avoided animal food, as we have seen in the case of Pythagoreans and Empedocles, and who had a number of books which they considered sacred lore written by Orpheus. Other evidence links the name of Orpheus with the founding of secret rites, usually associated with the underworld goddess Persephone, and often also associated with the cult of Dionysus or Bacchus. In fact, the name of Orpheus sometimes comes through in the sources as first and foremost a founder of Teletai, a culture hero. But the precise nature of rituals that he founded seems bewilderingly complex. It may be that Orphic religion, which scholars have long sought, a set of mystery cultic rites with a specific divine patron, usually thought to be Dionysus, was not the real picture. More likely is that the name of the prolific founder, Orpheus, was attached to many different sorts of rites because if you had some rites, it was a very good thing if Orpheus founded them. It was a prestigious name, and as we've seen in previous episodes, the Greeks liked to attach prestigious names to prestigious things, like rituals, like the foundation of cities, like the authorship of books, and so on and so forth. But we shall return to the question of Orphic religion and rites in the next episode. For now, what about the many books that these Orphics were reading? Well, the myth of the Rhapsodic Theogony is very different from anything we find elsewhere in the Greek sources, although it also has similarities, of course. And this is probably because it's derived, as Martin West has shown in an article in 1994, from a particular Near Eastern prototype, different from the Near Eastern prototype that influenced Hesiod and other Greek writers. We have parallels in fragmentary accounts of Phoenician myths, as well as more distant relatives to be found in places like the Book of Genesis. So the story, as far as we construct it, that is the story of the Orphic Rhapsodic Theogony, goes as follows. The world began with a sort of watery darkness or abyss. This would be the deep upon whose face there was darkness in the Genesis account. And then two deities in the form of winged serpent creatures called Ageless Time, Chronos Ageraos, and Necessity, Ananke, had sex. Chronos 
then generated two primordial substances, or places, or things. Aether and chaos. Aether, as we saw in the previous episode, was the common Greek term in this period for the pure upper air of the atmosphere. So we're looking at something like air, elemental air here. Or maybe something like space. It's a bit unclear. While chaos doesn't mean chaos, although it's the word that chaos comes from, as far as we can tell, it means something more like an immense bottomless chasm or fissure in reality. So we went from a watery darkness of some kind to these two winged snake creatures copulating and giving rise to Aether and Chaos. Both of these new additions are still engulfed in the blackest night. There's no light. Chronos then fashioned a shining egg from Aether, or perhaps in the Aether. In the egg developed Phanes, also called Eros or Protogonos, which means firstborn in the late Platonist accounts. The Chronos snake then squeezed the egg until it broke. Then Phanes leapt forth, splitting the Aether and the misty chasm and filling the universe with his light. So Phanes is a light god, and he is a hermaphrodite, and so is able, through the act of having sex with himself, to give birth to the various gods and the creation of the more familiar universe was now underway. There's more to the myth, and there are many variants to the myth, but this is something of a basic précis. Now, I've said that the Theogony cosmology was unique, but this isn't entirely true. Um, Phoresides of Syros, for example, the 6th century philosopher, seems to have had a figure of Chronos, time, who creates cosmic elements out of his sperm. So there are parallels there, obviously, although we know frustratingly little about Phoresides' work. And Aristophanes, the classical comic poet dramatist, gives a satirical cosmology in his play The Birds, which seems to be a pastiche of some version of the story. So he gives a joke Orphic cosmology, basically. Interestingly, the assumption then must be that his audience, or at least some of his audience, are familiar with the real Orphic cosmology. But the Hesiodic account, and later accounts of a generally Hesiodic nature, seem to have been the dominant default theogony in antiquity. Hesiod was very, very influential. So that is one version of the Orphic creation myth. There were others, and this story will pop up again in the history of Western esotericism, first in the later Platonists, as I've mentioned, who read it as an esoteric document illustrating Platonist theory, and then, of course, in the Renaissance with Marsilio Ficino, who took to Orpheus as a perfect exemplar of the Prisca Sapientia. But Ficino was particularly concerned with another set of texts, the so-called Orphic hymns. And here we have a, a unique document of a very different character from the hexameter poems. I say unique because were dependent for the text of the Orphic hymns on a single manuscript found in Constantinople in 1423, containing lots of hymns, that is, poems in praise of the gods. It contained hymns attributed to Homer, the so-called Homeric hymns, Callimachus, who is a lyric poet of antiquity, Orpheus, and Proclus, the late Platonist. And it was published in 1885 by Eugenius Abel as Orphica. But... Since the publication of this edition, the manuscript has gone missing, which is a fitting esoteric fate for such a text. These hymns have been a hugely ambiguous addition to our fund of ancient Orphica. Are they a sign of that longed-for thing, 
first-hand primary evidence for an Orphic religion in antiquity? Or are they a late forgery? Or something else altogether? Luckily for us, these questions don't really concern us unduly. The legacy of the hymns, however, does concern us, and we shall return to them again. They become hugely important to the thought of Marsilio Ficino, of course, who used them in startling magical contexts and apparently with startling results, and thus made an indelible impression on the history of Western esotericism and the theory of magic, as well as the practice of magic, for that matter. Now, we should wrap up this episode here. Our goal was to discuss the myths of Orpheus's life and death, and some of the myths and other texts attributed to the mythical Orpheus in antiquity. In fact, we've left out a lot of material along the way. The collection of fragmentary texts and other evidence from antiquity, collectively known as Orphica, is both tantalizingly incomplete and bewilderingly full of varied and numerous scraps. But don't worry, we shall return to this material again, and sooner than you might think, both in the following episode and in our upcoming discussion of Plato and Platonism. Today we've been addressing Orphica, Orphic materials, but in the next episode we shall approach the question of Orphicoi, the Orphics themselves. The idea that there was a religious path in antiquity, possibly an esoteric grouping with its own special characteristics, which we might call Orphic. We shall make the journey below in the company of a psychopompic Hermes in the form of Dr. Miguel Herrero of the University of Madrid. And in case you're wondering why we haven't discussed the Derveni papyrus, the Orphic gold tablets, or the Olbia bone inscriptions in this episode, all that will be made clear in the next episode. Or if not exactly clear, it will become confusing in a more richly nuanced way. In the meantime, by way of a taster for the next episode, we leave you with one possible translation of the gold tablet from Hipponion in southern Italy. This inscribed gold leaf was found in a 4th century tomb and gives instructions on what to do when you reach Hades so as to go down the right path and obtain a favorable result in the afterlife. Regular listeners will be thinking to themselves, aha, two paths in the underworld. This is the theme we're familiar with. Now, in this passage, note that Mnemasuni is the Greek goddess of memory. Mistai are initiates, and so are Bachoi, associated specifically with the Bachic mysteries. This grave belongs to Mnemosyne for the time when he shall die. On the right side of the well-fitted house of Hades is a spring, and close to this stands a shining cypress. Around this place the descending souls cool themselves. Do not approach this spring, but proceed to the lake of Mnemosyne with cold water flowing forth. There are guardians here, and they will ask you with shrewd speech what you are looking for in the darkness of deadly Hades. Say, I am a son of earth and starry heaven, and I am parched with thirst and perishing, but give me to drink from the cold water from Mnemosyne's lake. And they will show you to the Chthonian king and give you to drink from Mnemosyne's lake. And then you will walk on the holy path of the many, on which also other renowned Mustai and Bachoi walk. Until next time, do as the initiate in the underworld, and don't forget to stay esoteric. <laughs>